Hey, before we start on this episode, I want to invite you to join me for my brand new healing intensive program. It's called No Talks, the Toxic Relationship Healing Intensive. If you have been trying to heal from a toxic or abusive relationship and just feel like you're hitting a wall, this program is for you. No Talks is a six-week intensive that I'm actually going to be hosting with you live, and I'm going to help you heal from what's holding you back so that you can step into the future God has for you. The intensive starts March 5th, and if you register early, I'm actually going to give you free access to a bonus masterclass, Don't Get Fooled Again, Decoding the Red Flags and Mixed Messages of Toxic People. I would absolutely love to have you join me. Registration is now open and you can do that through the link in the show notes or at uncommonvalor.co. The roots of codependent thinking and behavior oftentimes can come from our faith traditions. If you're like me, that means you may have grown up in a church context or a denomination where scripture was twisted in such a way that trained you to tolerate toxicity. We're talking about this today on The Truth and Our Trauma. Ever sit down to pray and end up thinking about what you need to buy at the store instead? No judgment. I've totally been there. And that's why I decided to create the Ignite Strategic Prayer Planner and Journal. Know what to pray, track your impact, and learn to hear God's voice for yourself. Ignite is more than just a journal. It's a journey. And it's available now on Amazon and at the link in the show notes. I have talked many times here on the podcast before about having grown up in a faith tradition that was pretty legalistic. And when it came to unpacking the roots of my codependent behavior, some of it did, yes, have to do with issues from upbringing and family of origin and stuff like that. But then some of it actually came from the faith context in which I grew up, came from the way I began to understand myself in relationship to other people by the way that scripture was taught or mistaught and misapplied in my life. Before I jump in on the story here, I do want to mention that this might be triggering to you, especially if you have experienced any kind of physical or sexual abuse and abuse in a church context. So if you feel that that might be something that could be an issue for you, go ahead and just skip ahead a few minutes. You're not going to miss out on anything just by jumping past this story. All that being said, I grew up in the 80s. I was a little kid for most of the 1980s. And this was back in the day when all of us used to get dressed up for church. I mean, everybody used to get dressed up for church. And if you still do, totally no shade. I actually still like to myself as well. But this was a day and age when it was almost seen as like disrespecting Jesus if you showed up in jeans, right? Like this was something that would be unthinkable. We showed up to church on time, frilly socks, Mary Janes, and gloves, hats, the whole bit, right? And this was something that was just a thing that we did. I actually call this chapter of my life Frilly Socks Christianity (laughs) because so much of this had to do with what the external presentation of your faith looked like. And this denomination that I grew up in very much so was feeding into that. Now, the church I grew up in was a church that my entire family had 
been attending for decades. This was a church where my parents got married, where my dad went to youth group, where my grandparents led the choir. I mean, this I was so embedded in the culture of this church. And so naturally, we would stay afterwards. And all of the men would congregate out in the front foyer. And my grandfather was the head of the meds ministry. And so very often he would be out there socializing with the other men. And this was such a hard thing for me because I always wanted to go see my grandfather and give him a hug. But I didn't always love the attention of the other men that he was socializing with. I remember this one man in particular, he was always smoking out in the front of the church. And again, this was back in the days like when you could like still smoke in the restaurants and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't seen as as big of a deal. But I just remembered this man always smelling like cigarettes. And he was always looming, always smiling, always lurking. And when I would go and give my grandfather a hug, would say, hey, why don't you come over and give me a hug? I'd always figure out some way to try to get away. You know, if the kids were running in the front, I would just like go join the game of tag or whatever was happening. And one particular time, though, I couldn't. And as I was sort of turning away and turning into my grandfather and shying away, there was someone else who came up and said, now, that's not very nice of you. Jesus says that we must love one another. Now, I bring this story up because many of you have experienced some kind of boundary crossing and abuse in a church context, and that very often it's been justified through the twisting and the misuse of scriptures. There is no reason that a fully grown man needs to have a hug from a young girl. And to use scripture like this to coerce her into a situation that she is uncomfortable with is absolutely abusive. In many of the situations that we've encountered In a church context where scripture has been used incorrectly, sometimes it's by well-meaning people who do not understand what the scriptures are teaching. And they themselves do not understand boundaries. They don't understand appropriate behavior. And so they are justifying something they're actually uncomfortable with by using scripture to just sort of make it go away. Yet other times we know that there are predators, there are wolves in our congregations who are intentionally manipulating scriptures in order to claim power for themselves and to get people to go along with the things that they desire. Any way you slice it, when scripture is twisted like this, we are the ones who are left feeling guilty. We are feeling responsible and we're feeling like, if I don't do this, God is not going to be pleased. Forget the situation between me and this other person. I'm afraid of displeasing God or I'm afraid of going against what he says. And despite the fact that we feel like something is off, right? Something is definitely not right here. We're taught sometimes from a very early age to turn that inner witness, that Holy Spirit gut feeling off. And then when this happens, it's no surprise then that we start to operate in ways that are codependent. That's the way that we're being trained. We're being trained to shut down our own needs in a relationship, our own dignity and our own unique personhood for the sake of pleasing somebody else. And then to throw Bible verses on top of it, it seems to be sanctified. It seems to be that this tendency towards pleasing other people would then please God. And who are we to go against that? 
That's what makes this kind of codependency so hard to break. I call it Christian codependency because even if you go to therapy and even if you read books on boundaries and all that kind of stuff, if you don't inherently believe that God is okay with you not participating in relationships in these ways, you will keep doing it. I kept doing it. So I fully understand where this comes from. If you wore the frilly socks, I know that you get this too. (laughs) But the deal is what starts with frilly socks becomes so much worse when we get into adulthood. It's why we feel super guilty and super responsible for being a part of our church congregations to the point that we're overcommitting and serving and volunteering and arranging the potluck and doing all the things, right? But it's because we've been told that God loves a cheerful giver. It's why in congregations, people downplay the bad behavior of certain leaders because love is patient and it covers over a multitude of sins. Or maybe it's why you stayed in an abusive relationship because someone said that it was your job to submit or that they could be won over by your good behavior. And the problem with all of this is it sounds Right. It sounds like Bible. These are Bible verses, (laughs) right? This sounds legitimate. But sometimes what sounds right is not right. Sounding right and being right are not the same thing. Often when scriptures are misapplied like this, there are two major issues that come into play. The first one is them purely being taken out of context. It means that, yes, these words are in the Bible, but they are not being used in reference to the entire discussion. It's like when you're watching the news or you hit a clip somewhere on Instagram and it's a soundbite from the entire speech, but you're only getting one part of that. So it's very easy to just cut that out, extract it, and then use it in whatever way that you want to prove whatever point you want. One big example of this that really keeps people bound in toxic situations is when it comes to teachings around submission. A lot of times when it comes to teachings about submission, you'll hear reference to Ephesians 5. And especially if you're female and you're listening to this, it says, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And that's in Ephesians 5.22. And so that is used to encourage women specifically to obey their husbands in every single thing. Now, there's a major issue with this, and it's the fact that the very Verse before this one, 21, says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is teaching that in a marriage context, submission is mutual. Each person is offering deference one to the other. It's saying not to dominate one another and to need to have your own way, but to submit to one another as you are submitting to Christ, to work things through in a way that is gentle and understanding. So just taking the soundbite that says, wives, submit to your husbands, that is pulling that out of context in order to dominate somebody. And that's not submission. That is subjugation. Submission is something that is willingly undertaken. Subjugation is when a person is dominated and made to be a subject of somebody else. So we can see here, for example, that taking just that one clip out, you're actually trying to teach one thing, and yet you're teaching something completely different. So first major issue there, taking things out of context. Second issue is applying scripture 
to the wrong context. That yes, you may have the right idea, you might have the right thought and the wisdom, but it's not for this specific situation. Now, this is like when you are sick and you have been given the completely wrong prescription for what your problem is. It's like giving somebody an antibiotic for a headache. One of the passages of scripture where this comes up the most that I see is 1 Corinthians 13, which is the famous love chapter. This is the chapter where Paul is saying love is patient, love is kind. And while those truths apply to any and every situation, there are some things that he describes in this passage that are not useful for every situation. And the reason is when Paul is writing this, he is writing this in a point in his letter to the Corinthians where he's talking to them about unity. He's talking to them about the various gifts and abilities that the different believers have and how those are all supposed to work together and fit together to bring together that experience of each of us belonging individually and collectively to Jesus. So when he's saying love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, that is within the context of believers who are committed to Jesus and to one another. Those things are not necessarily applicable in a situation where someone is posing as a believer but isn't which we often see with toxic and abusive people. A situation where someone is trying to take you out. Now, yes, there are contexts where Jesus is going to call you to love people in ways that absolutely seem to make no sense. And certainly we each have a call to loving our enemies. But often this particular passage is used to encourage people to stay in situations that other portions of scripture would tell them to get out of. And I will dive more into that in just a minute. But the idea is, though, in the Bible, there is detailed teaching about preserving the integrity of the body of Christ, deferring to one another, being patient with one another to build each other up. And that teaching can be misconstrued and misapplied to allow a divisive and dangerous person not to build up, but to tear down when those verses are used in the wrong situation. So that's the second issue, though, scripture being misapplied in the wrong context. So with these two issues of things being taken out of context and being misapplied in the wrong situations, so often then we have distorted understandings of what the Bible is actually teaching us when it comes to how do we engage in relationships, and especially relationships where there is difficulty and conflict. So knowing that that is the case, I want to run really quickly through a handful of verses that are very often misused and misconstrued in these sorts of ways, and then look at what actually they really are saying and how they can help us to relate to people in a godly way and in the way that God designed for us to do so in our mutual relationships. The first one is God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that is true. That is Bible. But that is actually only the back half of that verse. The first half, which is 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, you must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. That's pretty explicit there. Do not give reluctantly or in response to pressure. How often do we do something because we're feeling guilty? 
And the issue so often here is you may genuinely be a generous, kind-hearted person, but when it is tainted with guilt and shame and condemnation, even your own gift then is not as much of a gift as it could be if you were truly giving out of the love of doing so. And that is what God wants us to do when we're giving of ourselves. Overgiving and overcommitting often comes from that root of condemnation. And so if we're feeling that condemnation, that's just an invitation for us to examine what is beneath that. And if we can understand and heal that, then we're able to give rightly out of that place of overflow and abundance and not of shame. And then we have the ability to understand what is my part to give and what is not. The next one comes from Matthew 7. This is where Jesus says, do not judge others and you will not be judged. And this is that famous chapter about the sawdust in someone else's eye in the plank in your own. And so often when we might be having an issue with another person that we're told, well, you know what? You've got your own stuff to worry about. Who are you to judge? Now that word there that is used for judgment What Jesus is implying here is not to condemn somebody else. It is not our place to condemn another person. But it doesn't mean we don't assess what they are showing us of themselves. And we know this to be the case because just a few verses later, same chapter, verse 6, Jesus says, don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. With this, Jesus is saying you're going to need to assess people sometimes and have the ability to determine whether or not you're going to confide in them or share certain things with them. It doesn't mean that you condemn them, but you also aren't necessarily going to trust them. This issue of trust is actually something we also see played out in a discussion that Jesus has about forgiveness later on in the book of Matthew chapter 18. In verse 21, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? up to seven times. And then in verse 22, Jesus answers, I tell you, not just seven times, but 77 times. Often this is used in such a way that tells people that they must continuously forgive someone and allow that person to have continual access to them in a relationship context. When it's being taught like this, it's basically the idea that the forgiveness is the reset, that we just forgive the person, forget anything happened, and go back to the way everything was. But that can't be the way that this is applied, because in the same chapter, in 18, is where Jesus outlines a process for dealing with someone who is unrepentant in their sin, that though you would forgive someone without limit, that they do not have unlimited access If you want to read that whole thing, it is in verses 15 through 17. But he's basically saying, if someone sins against you, go and confront them privately. And if they won't listen to you, then you need to bring some witnesses with you. And if they still don't listen to you, then you need to take them to the church for discipline. And if at that point they are not going to change, then you regard them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. He's changing the status. This person starts out as a brother, and by the end, if they won't repent— Now they're a pagan or a tax collector. This is someone who would have been outside of the body of believers. So while, yes, forgiveness is something that we offer continually, the trust and the access that we allow a person changes if they do not choose to repent. Okay, this one is for all my overthinkers out there. I used to be absolutely debilitated by intrusive thoughts. Everything from constant worry to just dread of the future, I couldn't make it stop. 
If you're there right now, I have developed a free downloadable guide to help you get your mind back. It's called Overthinking, Get Out of Your Head and On With Your Life. And you can download it for free right now at UncommonValor.co. Now, when it comes to tolerating abuse specifically, there are a couple of verses also that are commonly used. One of the first ones is in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your husbands so that even if they refuse to believe the word, they will be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see your pure and reverent demeanor. Now, this is one of those that is often that nice thought, but it's the wrong prescription. And one of the ways that we see this really clarified is actually in 1 Corinthians 7. In verse 16, Paul is actually talking to people who are in this situation of having been married to someone who's an unbeliever. And a lot of times what was happening in these contexts was people were married And then they came to find out about Jesus as the gospel traveled, and one person converted and the other person didn't. And so in those situations, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is saying, hey, you don't have to get divorced if this person isn't a believer. That if they want to live in peace with you, and that's a huge point, if they will live in peace with you, that you can stay. You can stay married. It's not a sin. And that by doing so and by conducting yourself in a Christ-like way, that that person without words might even decide that they're persuaded by the gospel as well when they see how it is transforming and changing you. But Paul also goes on to say, if the person doesn't want to live at peace with you, doesn't want that to be their experience with you, go ahead and let them go. And in verse 16, he says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And while these verses can be applied in a variety of different ways, the key here is the fact that it should never be used to justify abusive behavior and staying and suffering as a means of trying to convert somebody. Paul is saying here, it is not up to you to try to save somebody else, especially if they do not want to live at peace with you. This point is actually further made and clarified in 1 Peter 4, which actually contains the verse in verse 8 that says, Above all, love one another deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, that verse does not mean what a lot of people think it means. And the reason that it doesn't is if we go up a few verses, same chapter. You see a theme here? Same chapter in 1 Peter 4. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same resolve, because anyone who has suffered in his body is done with sin. He goes on in verse 2 to say, Consequently, he does not live out his remaining time on earth for human passions, but for the will of God. He goes on in the next few verses to describe the types of sins that they are done with. He's saying that, you know, you guys used to be involved in things like lust and drunkenness and debauchery and all this sort of thing. And that now that you are united with Jesus, you don't do those things anymore. So it can't be then that he's saying just a few verses later, like, oh, hey, if y'all are still doing those detestable things, like it's all right because love covers a multitude of sins. This is another call to unity and patience with one another as we are growing in sanctification for the times that we're going to do things that we make mistakes, that we unintentionally hurt someone's feelings or that we get it wrong, and that by being patient with one another, we are walking together in greater growth and sanctification.
And the important thing to know is that scripture never justifies or excuses abuse. Never. In Ephesians 5, Paul says in verses 6 and 7, Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. Then he goes on in verse 11 to say, Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. I've done many episodes before about teachings of scripture that tell people to be cautious of wickedness, to call it out, and to get away from it. And this passage is very clear in the fact that we are supposed to sanctify ourselves and separate ourselves from harmful and toxic behavior. We can love people from a distance. We can forgive them. We can do all manner of things. And those are still going to be hard, long-suffering type of things. But what we have to understand is that scripture equips us to have standards in our relationships and that we do not need to go along with things that are evil because we think it pleases God, because we think it's loving. So often our definition of love is off because of the way that we've grown up and the way that these things have been taught to us. And because this is hard, loving people in the way that the Bible teaches us to do is hard. There will be conflict, there will be disappointments, and there will be people that are not going to stay around. But even if that's the case, it doesn't mean that we're doing it wrong. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now he did bring peace to his people, 100%. That's what his death on the cross was all about, was to restore the peace between us and God. But it was not peace for those who would not follow. It's a sword. It is a source of division and conflict. The truth will divide out those who will follow from those who will not. And so knowing that, we have to recognize that love does not mean peace at all costs. It doesn't mean we don't have standards and we don't have boundaries. And it doesn't mean that we let people run over us because it seems to be the nice thing to do. And while Jesus did give up his life, that was not how he managed relationships on the earth. He did not manage relationships by laying down and letting people just do whatever they wanted. He called out abuses. He called out manipulation. He called out people who were pushing their own agendas and calling it faith. And so we are called to do the same. Now, as far as how to do that, <laughs> I'm aware that that's something that has lots of layers and steps to it. But there's one thing that is very protective for us that is easy at the start, and it's to read the Bible for ourselves, to really get connected with the Lord through His Word and to understand what He's saying. I grew up in a denomination that ultimately seemed to teach that you did not have the ability to read the Bible for yourself and understand it, that you needed someone else to interpret it and teach it and apply it for you so that then you would know what to do with it. And you know what this breeds? Abuse, where someone who does not have good motives and does not have good intentions is going to twist scriptures in ways that people will never second guess or check. And other times, though, it just leads to misinformation. It's people who maybe mean well, but they haven't been through some of the circumstances that you're going through or have been through. And so their understanding of scripture is not going to be as deep as it could be for the given circumstance. 
And so all of these things that I just unpacked for you, all these various verses, these were things that the Holy Spirit illuminated to me through a time of deep searching and deep studying as I was trying to dig out of a lot of things on my own. And so one of the most protective and beneficial things that you can do is to read the word for yourself and know then that just because something sounds right doesn't mean that it is right. Shalom. Thanks for being with me for this episode today. I hope you'll come back again. And in the meantime, you can follow me over on social media and find out about our resources and services over at uncommonvalor.co.